but uh, taking a break to consider the birth of Jesus. And uh, in the past, when we've done this, we've usually looked at particular texts of Scripture, but this morning is going to be topical. And the subject of our topical study basically is, as it says there on the screen, meekness and majesty. And um, the 80s were the best decade ever, I'm sure you all agree. And uh, in 1986, Graham Kendrick uh, published his well-known praise song, Meekness and Majesty, and that's what I've been thinking about. And the first stanza in that song says, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. And then the refrain says, oh, what a mystery, manhood and deity, come let us worship for he is our God. And for a, especially for a contemporary praise song, um, there's solid, profound theology in that song, communicated really, really succinctly. But that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, um, Christ's me, uh, meekness and majesty, and in particular, how those um, characteristics of Christ uh, relate to the, to the incarnation. So here's, here's where we're headed. Here's the message in a nutshell. So as Christians, we worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We believe, because the Bible tells us, that he's the eternal, infinite God who has come in human form. And as believers, in response to the gospel, we, we trust Jesus as the divine Savior of souls, and we obey Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we believe, because the Bible tells us, that that Jesus was born into very humble circumstances. And those humble circumstances continued to be the theme of his life on earth. And Christ's meekness and majesty show that he's the one mediator between God and men. So that's it. That's where we're headed. So let's look a little bit more closely, though, at what the Bible says. Um, so we'll consider, first of all, his, his meekness. The birth of Jesus highlights his meekness. And by meekness, we mean humility, gentleness, lowliness, and certainly Christ's death or uh, birth highlights his meekness. Think, for example, of the humble circumstances of Jesus's birth. Um, before he was born, there was a big question mark over the marriage or the um, impending marriage of his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. Dave read this earlier in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Uh, when his mother Mary had been 
been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so, humanly speaking, that can only mean one thing. And that would ordinarily be that Mary was unfaithful. And so in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So there was no question that Joseph was going to divorce her. The choices facing Joseph were, does he do that openly and publicly, or does he do it quietly and discreetly? And he had chosen to do it quietly and discreetly. And then that's when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him what was really going on. Mary was pregnant, not because she was unfaithful, but because God had performed a miracle within her womb. But still, there was that question mark. That's part of the, um, the lowly circumstances of Christ's birth. And then, of course, Jesus was born into poverty. Looking forward into Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, we're told that uh, when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, uh, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So nobody made special arrangements for this, this child. And uh, there's debate. Was this really an inn or was it a place outside where travelers gathered? What really was it? But I can guarantee you one thing. If this was a rich person, a well-known person, an acknowledged king, someone somewhere would have provided hospitality. Somebody would have made accommodations to make sure that uh, they were provided for. And the reality is there was no such place. There were no accommodations. And we've all become accustomed to that word manger. There's a man there it is. There's a manger in our little nativity scene there. But it was a feeding trough. There was no other place to lay the newborn infant but in a feeding trough. And all of this to highlight the fact that Jesus was born poor. Later on, in verse uh, 24 of Luke chapter 2, after Jesus was born, um, uh, after eight days, then his parents brought him into the temple as the law prescribed, and uh, they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, the law actually says that, um, that uh, a lamb was to be offered, but if the mother could not afford a lamb, then she could offer what uh, Mary and Joseph ended up offering that being a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. That was a specific provision in the law of God for a poor mother. So that was Jesus. 
His parents were poor. And things did not change. Jesus lived a very humble life. And he grew up into adulthood poor. Uh, during his earthly ministry, he said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And it's true that many Palestinian Jews in that time were poor, but few of them were homeless. Jesus was homeless. He had given up even the right to have a proper home in order to undertake his, his ministry. And then uh, just before he died, in John chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, on the occasion of the Last Supper, it's a familiar story. Uh, the disciples all come in looking forward to enjoying uh, the Passover with Jesus. And Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus did what a uh, run-of-the-mill household servant ordinarily did. Um, that was Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And we could go on many examples of how the birth of Jesus highlights his meekness. But that's not all. When we think about the birth of Jesus in Scripture, um, it uh, veiled his majesty. And that word veiled is, is carefully chosen. Um, what, what I mean there is a covering that obscures, but not like a blindfold. So think of um, the, the veil that a, a bride would wear. Something that obscures but not like a blindfold. We sang earlier in Hark the Herald Angels Sing the words from Charles Wesley, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The uh, church father Augustine wrote concerning the, the incarnation of, of Jesus because that's what his birth really was. His birth was ordinary in terms of the actual birth process, but it was extraordinary uh, not only because a virgin conceived and bore a son, but also because of the one who was actually born. The Bible tells us that the one who was born is none other than God himself. We'll talk more about that. But Augustine said about the incarnation of Jesus, man or manhood was added to him. God not lost to him. He emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him 
what he was not. And so that person who was born on that day, some 2,000 years ago, that person who lived some 30 years or so, 33 years before he was crucified, and that man who was crucified was none other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. And there were hints of Christ's majesty at his birth. So back in Matthew, we read from Matthew chapter 1, but in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And how many wise men were there? Ah, someone fell into the trap. The Bible doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. Um, The Bible tells us about their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it doesn't tell us how many. But thanks for being a good sport. Thanks for playing. Um, Where was I? Okay, so wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born, listen to their words, king of the Jews? So these wise men from the east, somehow, through their study of various um, holy texts, which probably included the Jewish texts, so the Old Testament scriptures, whatever. Maybe God gave them special personal revelation. We're not told. Somehow or another, they knew that around that time and in that neck of the woods, there was going to be born the king of the Jews. And not only that, but there was a supernatural cosmic sign that God had given to them. So they, and they said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So among these super humble, lowly circumstances that surrounded Jesus' birth, there is this hint of majesty, of the extraordinary nature of this this one, this infant, who is about to be born. And then there's his birthplace itself. Um, In verse 5, the counselors of King Herod told him that the place that the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born was in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, Micah, by the way, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So here we're in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6 now. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so Bethlehem, from the days of Micah, was marked out as the birthplace of this special King. The reason why 
there wasn't a whole bunch of fanfare at that time is because that was already centuries before. And the Jews were wondering, well, when is this going to take place? But it seems as if Mary and Joseph, as it were, snuck into Bethlehem. And uh, that was the place where the promised king was born in fulfillment of the word of God. And then there's the star that I already mentioned. Notice in verses 9 and 10, Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, Herod, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And frankly, I'm not into trying to explain the astronomy behind this star. Why not just say it's a miracle? Why not just say that the God who created all of the stars and now upholds all of them by the word of his power provided this particular star to these particular men for that particular purpose, to lead them to the place of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And uh, all of that, all of these are markers, signs, hints of Christ's majesty at his birth. And then after his birth, during his earthly ministry, and then after his resurrection, in particular, Christ's majesty was more fully revealed. And uh, I'd like you to see in Philippians chapter 2 how the Apostle Paul develops that. Philippians chapter 2. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 begins by uh, highlighting the humility of, of Christ. Notice in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he had a divine nature, he's of the same substance, the same being with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And once again, remembering the words of Augustine, that doesn't mean that Jesus, as the second person in the Holy Trinity, stopped being God. He, he humbled himself in taking on the form of a man. Manhood, humanity, was added to his divine nature. And so, for the first time, the eternal God the Son became a man. And all of that revealed his humility. He came in the form of a servant. He came as nothing, humanly speaking. He was born in the likeness of men. And that was all for a purpose, Paul goes on to explain. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, and he was obedient, 
It was his meat. It was his food. It was his sustenance to always do the will of his father, to be perfectly obedient to all of God's revealed will. But ultimately, Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death because that's what God's will was. That's what Christ's mission was in coming into this world to ultimately die, even death on a cross. But now listen to what Paul says in verses 9 through 11. That's why Jesus died. But now listen to how Christ's humility and his, his obedience, his accomplishment of his mission of salvation point to and lead to his exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul calls Jesus, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of that was in view. It was part of the scope, part of the plan, part of the purpose for Christ's birth, for his coming into the world in the first place. Well, so that's a brief look at the humility of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus, um, his, his majesty. Why? What was it all about? What does it tell us about why Jesus came in, into the world and, and who he is? That's what we'll look at next. So number three in your outline, Christ's meekness and majesty show why he is the only Savior. We could talk about a lot of things. We could talk about how um, Christ's meekness is our example. As he is meek and lowly and gentle, so should we be. We could talk about how Jesus didn't look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others, and so should we. We could talk about how Jesus himself said when he washed the disciples' feet uh, that we should go and do likewise. We should follow his example of being servants. But I want us to spend our time in concentrating on the fact that Christ's meekness and his majesty highlight the fact that he is our savior. He is our savior. Christ's poverty, humanly speaking, was intentional by God. It served a specific purpose. In, <clears throat> pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and there's a reference to Christ's preexistence, 
Because before Christ was born, he existed not just in Mary's womb, but even before his conception, he pre-existed. He's the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1 and verse 1. And it's that divine Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1 and verse 14. So before Jesus was born, before he was conceived, he was in heaven, and all things were made through him, and for him, and in him all things hold together. So creation belonged to Jesus. Jesus was unimaginably rich, and he was worshipped by the hosts of heaven. There was nothing that the pre-incarnate Jesus lacked. He was infinitely rich. But Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, yet for your sake he became poor by becoming a man, a true human being with a true human body and a true human soul. And then Paul says the purpose of that so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We don't become rich by becoming gods. There is only one true and living God, and there can only be one true and living God, but we become rich through salvation, through redemption. We are bankrupt we are poor in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing that we can do to please God, nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And ultimately, in that spiritual state, if God did not intervene and, and enter into our world, we would die into utter, eternal, spiritual bankruptcy. And the Bible calls that place hell, where the wrath of God is poured out on sinners who don't repent and trust in Jesus, sinners who die in their sins. But then believers become rich by putting their trust in Jesus, and his righteousness, the very righteousness of God is imputed to us as if we are righteous, even though we're not. And then we become heirs together with Christ. And remember, the whole universe belongs to Christ. And yet, by God's incredible grace, through faith in Jesus, we become children of God and heirs together with Jesus we become unspeakably rich. But then look with me in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11.
verse 28, the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to these words. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Those are really important words. Because Jesus in these words is not just describing his behavior. He's actually revealing his, his, he's divulging his character, his being. We could even say he's opening his heart to us. And he's saying at my core, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And he goes on to say, and you will find rest for your souls. That's his promise. Come to me and I will give you rest. One of the tragedies is, of humanity is we don't realize how much we need that rest that Jesus offers. We, we need that rest because we're wasting our lives without him. We're, we're living our lives in vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all a waste. It doesn't contribute to eternity. It doesn't help our souls. It doesn't help our relationship with God. If anything, all of the things that we live for outside of Christ drive us further and further away from him. And we need rest because even though we don't acknowledge God, we still have a conscience and subconsciously, to some degree or another, and in some way, shape, or form, we know that God exists. We know that eternity is real. We know that one day there's a judgment, and our consciences scare us. And apart from Christ, we're living under the constant threat of condemnation. We're living in fear. And we need rest. We also need rest because we're constantly living under the yoke of other people's expectations. We, we don't please God naturally, but then people somehow become substitutes for God. And all of their rules and all of their expectations and all of their commandments, we, we take on. But the thing is about the commandments and traditions of men is that they don't make sense. They often contradict one another. They contradict the law of God, and we just can't please everybody. But it drives us crazy. These are all aspects of the reason the reason why we desperately need rest. 
the very rest that Christ offers. And then he goes on, by contrast, to all of these vain things that people live for. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what I want you to walk away with is that um, all of this that Christ offers, it's all dependent on him humbling himself and coming into this world. If Jesus would have never been incarnate, if Jesus remained the eternal word of God in heaven, and from heaven he would have announced to the world, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. His very voice would frighten us because it's the voice of God. In order for us to hear this gentle, gracious invitation from the Savior, it had to come to us in a human voice, in human form, from this man who proved in his life that he really is who he reveals himself to me, to be gentle and lowly in heart. Because Christ came from heaven and was born Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, therefore this offer of the gospel could be made and we can be assured that when we do put our trust in him, when we do have faith in the Jesus of the Bible, the God-man, we will find rest for our souls. It's all dependent on the birth of Jesus, on the incarnation. Andrew Murray, who lived in the 1800s, wrote, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. And doesn't it highlight what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5? That there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christmas reminds us of why there is only one Savior. There is no one else who is who Jesus is, both God and man in one person. There's no one else who has done what Jesus has done. Conceived in the womb of a virgin, born of a virgin, 
lived without ever sinning, without ever even knowing sin, and yet dying on a cross for sin, not his own, but for ours, the sins of his people. And then because he's God, able to give those who believe in him the very righteousness of God. Come to Jesus Christ today. May this Christmas season, if you're unconverted, may this Christmas season be the time in your life when you look past all of the fluff, all of the outward things of this time of year, and you, you just think of yourself before God, and you see yourself as a sinner, which is what God lovingly says that you are, but then accept this wonderful, gracious, gentle, lowly, Majestic Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say but thank you? Thank you for what you have done to save us. When we think about our salvation, Lord, it just amazes us we look at this big book, the Bible, and we see everything in the Old Testament and these strange stories and characters and customs building a case, preparing the way for the coming into the world of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then, Lord, we hear his teachings and read about his, his wonderful works, and how he changed the, the apostles, including Saul of Tarsus, his resurrection, his glorification. And all we can do, Lord, is just bow our knees and say, we worship you, Jesus, our Lord and our God. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for giving us the hope of eternal life we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the message of Christmas. <clears throat> we pray in Jesus' name, amen.